time is coming, one of these days, when the church won't be able to meet like we're meeting, all friendly and everything, anytime we want, Satan will outlaw the church. So, First Samuel chapter, Second Samuel chapter 4 this evening, is it worth it? Is all of this Bible study worth it? It depends on what you do with it. David said he prepared with all of his might for the house of God. And hopefully we're preparing with all our might to stand in front of God. David rules the kingdom. Chapter 4, 2 Samuel, when Saul's son heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost heart and all Israel was troubled with him. As we remember, Joab assassinated uh, Abner and... Now the news gets to the northern kingdom where Abner was, of course, the leader, really. The king was really more of a figurehead. Uh, Anyway, he's afraid now, the king, Ishbosheth. Saul's son heard, that's Ishbosheth the king. And fear came easy to Ishbosheth as it came easy to his father before him. If it comes easy to us, we have to resist it. It cannot give in. It will just trample us. And he just didn't have what it took to rule. Ishbosheth did not. Abner being dead, Ishbosheth knew that he could not retain power. What if Judah decided to take over the north? He was not king enough to stop it. What if the Philistines decided to invade the land? Without Abner, what was going to happen? Verse 2. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of troops, the name of one was Baana, and the name of the other, Rechab, the sons of Rimon, the Beerothite, <laughs> of the children of Benjamin. For Beeroth also was part of Benjamin because the Beerothites fled to Gitaim and have been sojourners there until this day. Beeroth belonged to the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites were not Jews. They were the ones that tricked Joshua by saying, you know, we're not in the promised land, so, you know, don't harm us. And look at our bread. It is moldy and our shoes are worn out. We've been traveling around looking for a home. And Joshua ends it up making a treaty with them. And the great lesson is lean not on your own understanding, but on all your ways acknowledge the Lord. And, and the, you know, the people were pretty hot against Josiah, uh, Joshua. Uh, for that. Anyway, they stayed in the land, and Joshua said, then you're going to chop wood and fetch water uh, for our needs, which they did do. Uh, But Saul hated them and uh, persecuted them, and they probably, because Beeroth was in that Gibeonite region, they probably fled to Gitaim, and then Benjamites, those of Saul's tribe, took over that city. And so it's just sort of a mention of of the, some of the junk left over by, by Saul. More, more rubbish left by Saul. I don't want to be that one man in life where I just leave a trail of trouble for everybody else except Satan. Verse 4, Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel and his nurse took him up and fled 
And it happened as she made haste to flee that she fell and became, he became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. Uh, apparently, the chronicler is inserting this to say, after Ishbosheth, the present king, who was afraid now that Abner was dead, there was really no one left in Saul's house that could take the throne. Jonathan's son, Jonathan was the crown prince. He would have been next in line for the throne. He's dead. He died with, with Saul on Mount Gilboa. His son, Mephibosheth, is uh, a handicap. He's somewhat of an invalid, and <clears throat> therefore, he's not fit for the throne. Uh, so this is leading up to David taking over the kingdom. Now, this crippling injury was through the panic of a caretaker. And I have a file. You know, I have a file on everything. <laughs> uh, one for, for future sermons that I'd be led to is victims of the Bible. And he is one of them. Uh, here he is uh, injured because of the panic of a caretaker. Uh, later, he will be betrayed by a servant. And then David will give him a, a raw deal and sort of just not side with him when he had every reason to side with him. Uh, so we'll get to that much later. But he is introduced. He is now about 12 years old. We know that because the timestamp he was five when he was injured. And, of course, it's been seven and a half years since Saul has, had died because that's how long it took David to come to the throne. Uh, he turns out to be a noble character. I, I'm looking forward to getting to that section of Scripture where we see his devotion to David. And unfortunately, David does not seem to have the same devotion in return. Though David takes care of Mephibosheth, he has a place at his David's table forever. And so that's just a mention of him. We won't get him again for a while. Verse 5, Then the sons of Rimon, the Berathite, Rechab, and the other guy, Baruna, uh, set out and came <clears throat> at about the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth, who was lying on his bed at noon. Well, these are two brothers now, and they are going to be assassins. Um, they think they're going to be helping themselves and the kingdom and David, and their miscalculation will cost them a gruesome death. Uh, Saul's, all the viable candidates that would have taken, been in opposition to David, they died violent deaths, not at the hands of David. Saul, Jonathan, Ishbosheth, uh, you know, they, they were all killed violently, making, leaving where David would take the throne. But David had nothing to do with it. He would have none of it. He, he disallowed any self-enrichment from the murder or enrichment from the murder of others, refusing to ascend to the throne through subterfuge, and it's just another noble characteristic about the man. But here it's, it says it, that they set out and came at about the heat of the day to the house. Now it's a siesta time. I think Spain still has siestas. When I was in the service in Spain, I really liked Spain, and. They had to see, but you'd go out, you know, to this town or places, and everything would be closed from one o'clock to I don't know whatever three o'clock, whatever time it was. It'd be a little frustrating until you understood. Okay, they're going to be closed. I'll eat on the ship and do other things, and then I'll hit, hit it. But 
the heat of the day in Israel, I mean, even the guards were likely saying, you know, it's too hot. Let's just everybody just take a nap. It's something that should be, rather than have another dumb holiday, I think, I think coming up next is um, National Extension Cord Day. And there's, there's several others. Uh, but anyway, instead of doing that, let's just have siestas, you know. Every, every day at a certain time, everything stops and we all get to take a nap. Blanket sales would, for adults would go up, and I'd get mine. But anyway, that's what's happening. They're all hot and no AC. Verse 4, and they came there all the way into the house as though to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Bauna, his brother, escaped. For Verse 7, when they came into the house, he was lying on his bed in his bedroom, then they struck him and killed him, beheaded him, and took his head, and were all night escaping through the plain. Gruesome guys. Uh, the murder was, of course, unjustified. No one asked them to do it. They think this is a good. It just shows you how far out there they were. A lot of people, even, you know, you just come across people that have no understanding of what right and wrong is. And it's just like. Uh, the, it's very difficult. David had a lot of people like that in his life. Uh, anyway, they escaped through the Jordan Valley, about a 60-mile uh, trek from uh, Mahanaim, where they are, to Hebron. They're on the east side of Jordan, where they committed the murder, and they're fleeing southeast to southwest to where David is. This is the third of four beheadings in Samuel. There was Goliath, Saul. This is third, and there will be this troublemaker that uh, they will throw his head over the wall to Joab, and Joab will say, well, okay, let's leave now. We got what we wanted. It's uh, still savage, no matter what age you live in. Today, uh, as proof of the death of someone, we have journalists to tell you what's happening. But anyway, uh, sorry, I shouldn't have mentioned that in here. Verse 8, and they brought the head to Ishbosheth. Uh, of Ishbosheth, well, that would have been tricky. <laughs> well, <laughs> and they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. And Yahweh has avenged my lord the king this day, and Saul and his descendants. Well, David's heard this before, and it didn't go bad, good for the guy, last guy that told him. But what makes people think that the king will approve of killers? Well, that's what other kings did. But David's not like everybody else. He's a whole different character in, in many ways. Some ways, of course, he's still a man and he's a, still a sinner. But he's a righteous man. And uh, they, they projected that if we would like something like this to happen for us, David will like something. And they never looked into anything else. Um, how difficult. Anyway, Ishbosheth's head, we all told in verse 12, will be buried in the tomb of Abner. And it still grows, the whole thing. What are you going to do with it? I, you know, whatever happened to Goliath's head? Maybe he left it in Jabus, David did. But anyway, verse 9. But David answered Rechab and Bauna, his brother, the sons of Rimon. We have to be told this again. 
Evidently, the writer thinks we're not smart enough to remember. He's the same people a few lines up. Anyway, he said to them, David speaking to them, As Yahweh lives, who has redeemed my life from all adversity, when someone told me, saying, Look, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good news, I arrested him and had him executed in Ziklag, the one who thought I would give him a reward for his news. So David brings up uh, an event that happened uh, about seven years ago, and these guys are going to suffer the same fate. David takes the opportunity to make it known that it is only Yahweh who delivered him from his enemies. Uh, He says, who has redeemed my life from all adversity. Well, there'd be a lot more in David's life coming, um, but not because of Yahweh. The hardest ones will be because of David himself. So uh, we are not to consent to evil so that good can come out of it. That is not how we do it. Mark's Gospel, chapter 3, verse 23. So he called them to himself and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? And that's what he is, you know, the the devil is not going to bring about good by doing devilish things. Uh, uh, Peter writes this, Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling. I just broke this today. Yep. It was driving a car. Vehicles were involved. I, I think we should go get a, get just get rid of cars and just live close to the store. It, just, um, it really was their fault. One was on a cell phone. I'm sorry. I'm just I'm in another place right now. I mean, I, I told the Lord right out. You know, it's not me. <laughs> anyway, not returning evil for evil. But reviling or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. We're supposed to be different. But that guy was on the cell phone and he blamed me. Anyway, David, how he handled Saul, he taught us how to love your enemies. When he could have retaliated, he taught us about this not returning evil for evil. And uh, I think there are great, great lessons in there to, to think through as individuals. Verse 11, how much more when wicked men have killed a righteous person in his own house on his bed, therefore shall I not now require this blood at your hand and remove you from the earth? I don't know if he was that poetic with it, but he's telling them they're going to die. And, of course, he renders the judgment and the execution. He calls Ishbosheth a righteous man because, or person, because he he did not commit a a deed worthy of this. Uh, Verse 12, so David commanded his young men, and they executed them, cut off their hands and feet, and hanged them, hanged them them by the pool in Hebron, but they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner in Hebron. So here's a message to everyone else that the king would not tolerate such assassinations. And uh, David is drawing this from Deuteronomy 21. This is a sight not to forget. Whether they're hanging from 
rope or impaled. We don't have that information. Impaling was common. But he put them by the pool where water, not was not a swimming pool, water, community pool for water, a well-like, where people traffic or traveled. There was a lot of traffic there. So everybody got to see this. It was not, you know, go put it in the back of the building when, in an alley somewhere. He does this right over where people are going to see it and word will travel around. This ghastly sight. And uh, so that's the end of chapter 4. Now we can close in prayer and go out and do stuff while the kids are being watched and get back here. <laughs> we have a great opportunity to uh, go shopping or get a quick bite. And they'll be none the wiser if the ushers don't tell anything. Anyway, <laughs> chapter 5 now. <laughs> uh, verse 1. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and spoke, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. So, okay, Ishbosheth's dead. They have no king. They have no candidate to replace David. And so they, they surrendered, okay, now is the time to make David the king. And they start by reminding David, hey, we're family. And you know, the, the bonds that are supposed to exist. And David is very gracious because he can really go off on these guys. He does not. Um, he leaves that for us to do. To say, are you kidding me? What people? Well, I'm people too, and I'm a sinner too, and I goof up also. So I don't feel too hard against these guys, but the fact remains, it's kind of lame what's going on here. Verse 2, also in time past when Saul was king over us, they're speaking to David, the tribal leaders, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And Yahweh said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. Well, of course, this is recorded in 1 Samuel 18, the part about David leading everybody out and coming back in. We'll take one. It's, it's in 19.2. We have four times it's stated. But we'll just take one from 1 Samuel 18, verse 16. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and came in before them. Well, Saul messed all that up, and these guys were accomplices to that. We have read nothing about them lifting a finger to comfort or help David. Now, granted, they could have been afraid the way Saul terrorized the nation, but they still had seven and a half years after Saul's death to act on this, and they did not. And Yahweh said to you, you should shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. Well, if you knew that, if you knew God said that, why did you not honor it? Why did you not do something to bring it about? And, well, of course, these questions weren't asked. There's no point in asking them. It would have been humiliating. David, of course, being on the right side, they on the wrong. But they admit that they knew what God's will was and that uh, they did not participate in bringing his will about. We have, again, professed Christians who, who, who do the same thing. They know what they're supposed to do with church, for example, and, and they, they don't. It's a difference between struggling with something and just opting out. And anyway, now they have nowhere else to go. Uh, Matthew chapter 2, verse 6, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not 
the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Now, the purpose of me reading that verse is to point out that God intended his leaders to be pastors. That's what Latin for, pa- Latin for shepherd is pastor. And uh, this uh, metaphor is applied in Scripture often. Uh, the, the rulers under God over God's people, and the people are the sheep. All of us are the sheep of his pastor in a larger sense, but there is this structure to hold everything together without which uh, it would be disastrous. Jeremiah 3, verse 15, God says through the prophet, And I will give you shepherds according to my heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And Satan stands up and says, We'll see about that. Because I'm going to take those shepherds and I'm going to get them to line up with my heart, as rotten as it is. And so we have, of course, some foul ones out there who are heretics, who tell you that God's word is second to love. We have a a notable uh, one-time Calvary pastor out there telling people that, you know, love is more important than the scripture. Uh, This is heresy. This is Satan's work. And there are people that lap it up because they, they, they've entrusted themselves to this um, false shepherd now, because there's other things he's done too. And it's unfortunate to see apostasy in action. It's not cute. It's, not a, it's very it's terrible. Anyway, Acts 20, verse 28, Paul, this is, uh, he's heading to Jerusalem. He believes the prophecies concerning the trouble that awaits him. And so he's trying to prepare the leaders. He has called the leadership meeting at, um, not at Ephesus in the city, but at Miletus because he doesn't want to get caught up. He wants to make it to Jerusalem by the Passover. He says, therefore, to the elders, Paul speaking, take heed to yourselves. Now, that's the first step for a pastor. You know, keep watch yourself before you, you tend the flock. And then he says, watch yourselves. Take heed to yourselves and to the flock. Solomon writes in Proverbs, know the state of your flock. Uh, where there are no oxen, the trough is empty, but much increase comes through their labor, which essentially means uh, in a church, you, like in a, on a farm, you're going to step in stuff from time to time that you'd rather not. But it's worth it. A much increase comes by this collective effort. It is God ordained, and it, it, it um, just—it's all. All of us have our, our part to do. No one is greater. The highest calling a Christian can have is the calling God has called them to do. Um, for me, it's pastoring. But for you, an equally high calling can be whatever God has called you to to do uh, for Him. If you are in the kids' ministry, that is every bit equal a calling as the pastor. Now, there are some twists and turns, of course. Somebody in the kids' ministry can uh, say the wrong thing, and he gets kind of shrugged off or dealt with. But a pastor, a weapon of mass destruction in Satan's hands, if, if, if Satan can pull it off. Anyway... Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. But Paul is like in their face with these facts. This is, this is how the church is, he's saying. It's the, it's, you have to watch yourself. You have to watch the flock. And this is a work of the Holy Spirit. He's called you to oversee. And then he says to shepherd the church of God. 
which he purchased with his blood. I mean, that, that just, it's, it's one sentence, and he just lays it out, and it is one of the great verses of the Bible. Um, and it's so passed by. It's, it's almost, it's heartbreaking to, to, under, to know that there are so many that really don't care about the value of this verse. And, um, and anyway, my point is, the Lord said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. This is not tyranny. This is, this is given by God. Paul, and three times in Hebrews 17, says to the flock that the pastors rule over you. Not, they don't, they're not dictators, nor are they micro, to be micromanagers. But they are to rule over the flock or else things break down. Anyhow, um, I'm not saying these things because I'm a pastor. I'm saying these things because I'm a Christian and I find them in the Bible. And I don't find a way to excuse them, get rid of them, edit them, or trivialize them. Uh, verse 3, Therefore, all the elders of Israel came to the king of, at Hebron. And King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before Yahweh. And they anointed David king over Israel. And rightfully so. Uh, if something does not have a head, it's, it's a problem. And if it's still alive, while well, it doesn't have a head, it's a monster. And now the nation is united. We read about this in First Chronicles 12. It's one of the great Old Testament passages of how these troops are lining up behind their king. And there's something very attractive about righteous loyalty. It requires, especially when you see it in large numbers, as you do in First Chronicles 12, which again belongs to this section. And they're going to stay, this united kingdom, united through David's reign, through Solomon's reign, but Solomon's going to mess it up, and Rehoboam is going to finish it off, Solomon's uh, son. And uh, that will happen 900 years before the coming of Christ. So this the third anointing of David, anointed by Samuel to be king, God's choice, anointed a king over Hebron, and then seven and a half years later over the entire kingdom. Verse 4, David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. That's when he began to reign in Hebron. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. And so he's about 37, 38 years old now. And it, it is about a thousand, a little over, just over a thousand years before Christ will come. Um, he, David will be, according to these numbers, about 70, 71 years old when he dies. And that is in First Kings chapter 2, uh, the account of his going home. Verse 6, then the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites and the inhabitants of the land, who spoke to David, saying, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you, thinking David cannot come in here. <laughs> that was a big mistake on their part. Uh, David's first recorded act as king over all Israel is to take Jerusalem, which incidentally, was allotted to the tribe of Benjamin, Saul's tribe. Benjamin, I mean, Saul could care less. David 
David, of course, linked Jerusalem way back. His passion for Jerusalem is linked to Genesis chapter 22 and more. And we're going to open a little bit of that up. Jerusalem would become the site of the temple and the place where Jesus died and rose again. Uh, So Psalm 137 verse 5, If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let me starve to death, man. Let me lose my job, my vocation. I mean, this is the, he, the psalmist is saying Jerusalem is special because God has made it so. Melchizedek met, met Abraham there. And decades later, God dispatched Abraham to offer up Isaac on Mount Moriah, where the temple would go. Now, the Jebusites, they were Canaanite inhabitants, linked to the Canaanites. Uh, they were... According to Joshua 12, they were conquered. The Jews conquered everybody when under Joshua, but evidently they did not hold the city. They conquered it, chased the people out, killed whoever didn't escape, and went on to the next conquest. And when they went to the next conquest, the Jebusites came back to the city. And what did they do? They fortified the city. And then the Jews couldn't get them out. And we read about that at the end of Joshua and at the beginning of Judges. That, the, that Judah could not, again, dislodge them. They really could if they put their minds to it. But that part of Scripture tells us that the war against the flesh is every bit as difficult. Um, anyway, uh, the inhabitants of the land, it says here in verse 6, the inhabitants of the land who spoke to David, saying, now, there's a grudge between these two. It started when David, well, at least the first place we can track it is to when David slew Goliath and he takes the head to Jabus, which wasn't a Jewish-controlled city. Why would he do that? Why would it be specified in the Scripture? It doesn't say, you know, he took it to, uh, uh, you know, Beersheba or Hebron. No, he takes it to Jerusalem, the head. Because David is saying, this is our land. And this is what's going to happen. We're going to conquer you like I conquered this giant. And that's why he went there and brandished the head. Maybe he tossed it there. Keep it because I'll be back. So from his youth, because he was a youth when he slew Goliath. From his youth, he had this passion for Jerusalem. Uh, You know, Jerusalem is a metropolis now. It's a city built up. But so much history has happened under that sky. It's just too much to take in. It's even hard to figure out where you are in Jerusalem. It's just such a complicated place. Hadrian just just leveled the city completely and rebuilt and put Jupiter's temple there. And just so the landscape has been the the engineers over the centuries have really done uh, so much to the landscape. Well, anyway, where did this passion come from in David? Uh, Again, Genesis 22, verse 2. Then he said, God speaking to Abraham, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. There's a long trek for Abraham. It was not five or six miles. It was, uh, oh, I don't know if I remember, 50 miles or so. Uh, even if it was five miles, it would have been long. Anyway, First, Second Chronicles 3 
Now Solomon began to build the house of Yahweh at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. There's the connection. Where Yahweh had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. David was, would be good to the Jebusites after he conquered them, incidentally. A lot better than they would have been to him. So the point I'm trying to establish for us as those who worship is this passion for something in our faith. And we should have several passions in our faith. And when you feel them leaving, recognize that and make the choice. What are you going to do about that? Or maybe you don't feel like singing. Okay, so you take a hiatus, but you understand you got to get that back at some point because it's been given to us because we need it. God did not give the church gifts because he had extra wrapping paper. It's, you need this. And this is why uh, he, he dispatched the gifts that we have. Uh, there's much to talk about with the gifts. Uh, I do believe they're still in existence, but I don't believe that they are to to be abused, and that's just a whole story. Anyhow, it was on David's to-do list to conquer Jerusalem. With Jebus now. It's not yet named Jerusalem. Uh, that comes later. Uh, it goes back, though, to Melchizedek, the city of peace. It's believed the link of the word. And so he's going to settle this. But they are, of course, defying him with insults. Not only are they saying, we're going to fight you. But they're saying, we're going to use the least of our, our citizens. And you can't even beat them. Our handicap, now of course it's hyperbole. They don't, they're not going to actually do this, but the insult has been, has been thrown down, declaring their weakest citizens are stronger than David and his men. And let's look at back at verse 6 again, because it's a very attractive phrase, that first sentence. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem. It's just a very... You know, knowing the history of it all, it's very attractive. And knowing that when they said this to David, his men were with him. And these were not the guys to say something like this to. David, David is, is he's, such, he's now in the role as a leader. He's not trying to prove himself. And by, so when they say, you shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you, thinking David cannot come in here. Well, of course, they were wrong. And Goliath mocked David. And look what happened to Goliath. And so taunting him by claiming that he was inferior, and he, he and his men, you'll never meet a Jebusite unless he's lying to you. You're not a Jebusite. You're from the Bronx or something like that. Only the Jews could survive for so long without a homeland. And that's one of the reasons when you come across these names of these ancient people that are gone, the Philistines, the Jebusites, they have no homeland. If they, if they left their homeland, they were assimilated into other peoples. Well, the Jews left their homeland. They were pushed out 135, 136 uh, after, uh, years after the birth of Christ. After the temple fell, the Jews stayed in that area in, Jerusalem, in Israel. And then the Bakakba rebellion, the Romans just had it. And they, they just pushed them out of the land. And out of the land they were for 1900, over 1,900 years 
but they retained their ethnicity and their heritage and their religion and their language, and then they were put back in their land. It's never happened before, and we need to be reminded of this because the main thrust that God will say, you see my promises in the New Testament of moving mountains and stuff like that, and you find you can't do all those things. There are prayers you, you, you send up to me that are noble prayers, and I do not grant them for reasons I'm not going to tell you. But you, the obedient servant, you keep following me anyway in defiance to Satan because of truth. And as a bonus, I'm going to remind you of something that other generations have not had. Look at Jerusalem. Look at Israel. Who's back in that land now? Who called it? The scriptures call it. And God is saying, just trust me. I know you're suffering. I know you're getting beat down. It ain't going to last forever. Maybe forever in this life, but it won't be forever in your existence. And by faith, we, we, we're up and going after that. So this is very meaningful to we, the New Testament church, David and his men, as Christ will come back with his people, his army. Verse 7, nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. Very very laconic <laughs> statement. He took a city. No, no, not giving any details. And thousands were killed. Yeah, he took it. You can't come in here. <laughs> and he's in. Uh, well, he warned them with the head. And he treated, again, them very uh, humanely. Solomon will make forced laborers out of them. But even Solomon will be kind. He's going to force them to work, but he's going to... He's not going to treat them as slaves. He gives them time off and things like that. Uh, that's in 1 Kings 9. Here it says of Zion. This is the first time we come across Zion in the scripture. Uh, the, the name grew to apply to not only uh, the temple mount, where the temple would be built, to all of Jerusalem, to the Jewish people today, to the city of David. Uh, there were two mountains, uh, the prominent mountains in Jerusalem, not just two, uh, but they, one was Mount Moriah, where the temple would go, and the other would, was uh, another Mount Zion, uh, just south of it, where, where David's city would go, and his palace would be built, where he looks out after Hiram sends him all sorts of nice things for his house, cedar, because most of the houses were stone and mud, and, and then David all of a sudden has a cedar house, and everybody in the neighborhood wanted one. Uh, but uh, anyway, they, it becomes David's city, and it is, it is worth seeing. Uh, it's, many things are open to, about it to tour uh, to, to this day. The city of David. Bethlehem will also be called the city of David. You have to understand the context of how the writers are using these things. And that's in Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. So, uh, anyway, uh, the city of David. Uh, I don't think there's anything else I, I have to add to that. Verse 5, but there's more here. Now, David said on that day, whoever climbs up by the way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites, the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. <laughs> so some humor in there, right? Uh, Therefore, they say, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And so they didn't let that go. So David says, oh, yeah? 
hey, whoever can go up and defeat the lame and the blind <laughs> gets to be commander. And then it became this this sort of a idiomatic proverb amongst the people. Yeah, yeah, well, you know, the blind and the lame can't come in here, which meant that, yeah, they can if once conquered. So he says there's a shaft, and they're there to this day. Many of these water shafts and canals underground and above. But this one was subterranean, like a chimney, a shaft coming out uh, with the water table down below. And the tunnels, uh, you, the water wasn't always up to the top. You could, you know, wade through it up to your knees or your waist. And to this day, you go to Hezekiah's tunnel, there's, uh, you just wade through the water. It gets boring after about the first 20 minutes. Like, oh, look, more water and rock in the dark. But at very pl- I would recommend it. I, I really would. Anyway, um, Joab is the guy. First Chronicles 11. We're not told here, but First Chronicles gives us a parallel account. Now David said, whoever attacks the Jebusites first shall be chief and captain. And Joab, the son of Zariah, went up first and became chief. <laughs> so Joab, out of my way, because he wants to be the commander. And everybody moved out of his way because he would stab them. And so uh, how does he get up that chimney? Did he have like a folding ladder? Uh, However he did it, it was impressive. He gets up, climbs up. The others are following, I'm I'm sure. Uh, They open the gate for the larger force to come in, and the Jebusites were just shocked and defeated. The blind and the lame, uh, again, referring to their citizens, became an epitaph mocking them. It backfired. Uh, Verse 9, then David went in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built all around the Milo uh, and Inwood. And that's believed to have been fortifications. Solomon and Hezekiah will, will, will build them up. Hezekiah will repair them. Solomon will build them up even more. Verse 10. So David went on and became great. And Yahweh, God of hosts, was with him. And so, you know, you like that, right? Uh, so David went on and became great, and he did. Yahweh of hosts, uh, Yahweh, God of hosts, that means he's the commander of the armies, his armies, on earth and in the spiritual realm. Or you, we would say in, on, in heaven and on earth. Verse 11, Then Hiram, king of Tyrus, sent messages to David, and cedar trees, and carpenters, and masons, and they built David a house, so David knew that Yahweh had established him as king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. Boy, there's a lot there. Well, Hiram is believed to have been a new king also. And he wants a friendship with David, and he gets one. He retains the friendship with Solomon, and, and they do. Well, Solomon, they have joint ventures that they, they get involved with. So David now has got this cedar house, and all the moths were disappointed with this new development. Uh, um, But he's come a long way from sleeping under the stars and in caves and in a hand-me-down ziklag town. Now he's he's getting a palace, and he is going to, not yet, but later he he will say to the prophet Nathan, this is just not right. 
I've got it pretty good, but the place of the ark, it has no house. God's presence should have something greater than this. But he's enjoying now the fruits of obedience and endurance. The day did come. And remember, it was not long ago. He said, Saul's one day going to kill, Saul's one day going to get me. He's going to kill me. And God said, no, he's not. And now he's still relatively young. And verse 13, and David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he had come from Hebron. Also, more sons and daughters who were born to David. Yeah, maybe somebody in Hebron said, what's wrong with the girls here? Why do you, <laughs> I could be going to Jerusalem, you added all these wives. Not a good thing. Kings and their harems. It reminds us, it's all through history, no getting away about it or from it. It reminds us of the fallen nature that belongs to us all. That they are righteous and they are unrighteous and sometimes it gets sticky. We remember as Christians that, as Paul said it, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ in all and is all and in all. Christ is all and in all of his believers. Uh, no longer those things. Your ethnicity uh, fades. And what uh, becomes prominent is your citizenship in heaven. And uh, that comes very easy when you're filled with the Spirit. Because you just realize there's nothing in this life to hold on to. I'm trying to hold on to the things of the next life. It is not an insult to one's ethnicity. If you are Scottish, you're still Scottish. If you're Polish, whatever it is. But your primary citizenship is not here. And if that ever becomes an issue, you are automatically wrong. Uh, you are Christian. And that's what a lot of these, uh, a lot of the Jews today don't understand, even the Messianic Jews. You're really not Jewish anymore. There's no longer, it says it right here. You're Christian. Not acting like you're A class Christian and I'm B class. Some of them do roll that way, and you just have to just, uh, you know. I got my faults too, and it's pointing out other people's faults. <laughs> Stop criticizing me for criticizing you. Anyway, uh, the status of kings in those days, measured by their harems. And even though David was the exception, still, the commandment was, you're not to multiply wives and horses as king. And you're to read the word and write your own scripture. R not, well, let me rephrase that. You're to recopy the laws of Moses. Uh, David. He, you know, grateful that he's a man of God. He knows Deuteronomy. He also would have known where his prohibitions were. And so it, that's how it was. At times, he failed God, but God never failed him. God never disowned him. See, I have a hard time identifying with Daniel sometimes. Uh, because he's just, Daniel's so clean. And he's just so, you know, as men go, he's just so honorable. David is just every bit as righteous as Daniel, but he's all messed up in some areas. He just can't get something right. Like Peter. Uh, and like us. And anybody who says it's not true is not being honest. That's what John was writing to the, to the, in his first letter to the church that was being hounded by the Gnostics who were saying, well, we're above sin and sin doesn't really matter. And John, they're saying, I don't sin because they were trying to separate uh, the spiritual from the physical to the point where it didn't matter what you did in the physical realm, long as in your head. And, of course, John slams that. Anybody says they're not a sinner is lying. Uh, 
Uh, verse 14. Now, these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Now, the first guy sounds like he's a whale. I mean, Shemua. I mean, you know, how can you not make that association? Shobab, Nathan, and Solomon. Those are all Bathsheba's children, which is, again, the mercy of God. I, I like to believe Nathan was named after the prophet Nathan, who busted David. So, so again, they have the child, the first child dies. They have other children. After Nathan calls David out, and still David names, and Bathsheba, name one of their sons after the prophet Nathan, instead of holding a grudge. Uh, it's very beautiful. Then we have Ibhar, and Elishua, Nepheg, and Japhia. Hmm. Uh, verse 16, Elishima, Eliada, and Eliphalet. That, that one's not very, but there's one missing. And I'm sure you want to know what his name is. I'm sure you do. It's Noga. And that's in First Chronicles 3. All right, we did that. Verse 17. Now, the Philistines say, what does that have to do with anything? Well, these are real people, real souls, and they are very likely in heaven. Um, more sons to come. Verse 17. Now, when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel. All the Philistines went up to search for David, and David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. The Philistines, of course, are, are the enemies. They're out, they represent our, our troubles in life, those things that attack us and uh, if, if for, for a type. They came to pick a fight. They're thinking, let's go nip this new king in the bud, show him who's boss. We'll do to him what we did to Saul uh, and they are going to be wrong. They're threatened by David for taking Zion, for his friendship with Hiram. Uh, so now they think now is the time to act. And uh, they're going to pay for it. Verse 18, the Philistines also went and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. Of course, that's where Joshua beat the Amalekites. And Moses holding his arms up and praying for them. And they sat him on a rock when he got wearied and they held his arms up. Same battlefield. Verse, uh, and that had to factor into David's thinking because he knew, he knew the books of Moses. It, it's evident from his life. Verse 19. So David inquired of Yahweh, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? And Yahweh said to David, Go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hands. <laughs> Always dependent on God when it came to war. No question. This, I don't think this is the Urim and the Thummim being used because there's, there's details that you can't get from just, I mean, unless there's something we don't know. Which I think this may be the prophets are speaking to David. And may the priest of present, his war council would include the prophets, the priests, and his generals, and tribal leaders, and whoever else he felt he wanted, the scribes. Anyway, he goes to God, shall I go up? Instead of just, it's a no-brainer. They're coming into the land, uh, let's go get them. That's not what David does. He lives out what Solomon wrote. Uh, In all your ways acknowledge the Lord, and he shall direct your paths. Verse 20, so David went to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said to Yahweh, he said, Yahweh has broken through my enemies before me. 
like a breakthrough of water. Therefore, he called the name of the place Baal Parazim. Uh, is a memorial. God burst through for him. Occasionally, the term Baal was used in a generic way and just as Lord. And so it's, it, it's a, here a, a applied to Yahweh as Lord instead of Adonai. That's part of the language of the land. The, you know, the archaeologists find writings, obelisks, and other types of tablets and things with king's names, and they almost never spell the same way. But it's the same king. Uh, they know by the events that take place and close enough to the spelling. Well, you've got dialect. You've got different people from different places writing things. It's just a very busy environment in that sense in a scribal sense, and it's no contradiction. You can trace these things. So uh, a memorial for what Yahweh did for him, good for us too. I, I Just the other day, I was remembering something God had done for me a long time ago. I mean, a lot of things, but it was one that well, I forgot all about that one. I felt, I felt small because, because, you know, you just get you're just satisfied with things, and God reminds you, hey, remember this? Oh, yeah, I do. Verse uh, 21, and they left their images there, and David and his men carried them away. <laughs> they abandoned their gods on the field of battle. What kind of, what, what is that? Well, believers, we can do the same thing. We're not careful. Well, we, and maybe it's not the battlefield. Maybe it's the lap of luxury. Well, we can abandon our gods. We get it so good that we just God becomes a routine in our prayer. Uh, that's kind of, we want some passion. Um, Again, emotions, just because emotions can take over the ship doesn't mean we don't want emotions on the ship. They're valuable. They're critical to have. It's passion. It's just when they start doing the thinking, it's all messed up after that. And it's very hard to go into an environment where the majority thinks with their feelings. That's how you end up with heresy, even. Uh, anyhow, uh, this... But they, what did they do with these idols that they found? Well, they burned them up. It helped keep the land pure. People saving one like, you know, Achan did, you know, so, you know, being commanded to get rid of this, and he wants to keep it. But the, and it would have helped idolatry, which didn't need any help. First Chronicles 14, in its parallel account of this battle, and when they left their gods there, David gave a commandment, and they burned, uh, they were burned with fire. So they did not cart them off and take them home. They got rid of them. So David knew Deuteronomy 7.3, where those instructions are given specifically. That means he knew Deuteronomy 17.17. He couldn't say, oh, I didn't get that far. He would not have said that. Verse 22. Then the Philistines went up once again and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. Oh, great. The enemy regroups. Typical. Something we've got to watch out for. It's not enough to defeat the foe in battle. We must watch our victories. Uh, and it's so hard because, you know, you get a victory. There's such a feeling of relief, almost euphoric. It's like, man, I can't believe God did that. It's wonderful. And now you're not doubling up the guards when you should be. Because Satan's going to just double back. He's going to regroup many times. And so we have to be ready for the enemy's attempts to win back, uh, his win back attacks. He's coming back at us again. And that, this, so this is kind of drawn out for us, verse 23. It's not just, and he defeated them. 
And then they deployed again. Verse 23, therefore David inquired of Yahweh. And he said, you shall not go up, circle around behind them, and come upon them in front of the mulberry trees. So uh, it's not a cookie-cut response. Well, last time I did this, it was very successful. I'll do it again. That's not what's happening. David, God is telling him right out, don't do what you did last time. He tells him right, right, you shall not go up with a direct attack. This second engagement is different. And David was wise enough to again seek God and submit. And God gave uh, the different tactic. Had David not asked, it could have been like Joshua at Ai. He gets defeated on the first uh, attack, a couple of attacks. And he's lying before God, and God tells Joshua, get up. What are you doing before me? There's a fight to be had. Uh, It appears, again, that David is seeking this information from a prophet, because how how do you get detailed instructions from the lights and perfection? doesn't seem to be the way it is. Now, if you say, no, I think God still did it that way, that's fine. It's just, um, it's not practical. And just because God does miracles does not mean he abandons uh, practical uh, approaches. Verse 24, And it shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the the mulberry trees, uh, then you shall advance quickly, for then Yahweh will go out before you and strike the camp of the Philistines. And so this is miraculous. He's going to add some special effects here through the mulberry trees. Uh, I don't know why troops going into war do not take mulberry trees with them. Uh, <laughs> quick, get the arborist. Uh, anyway, <laughs> I, I think it's kind of comical. You see the you know, little boats hitting the beach. The guy's got these trees. <laughs> okay, verse 25. And David did so. Amen. And Yahweh, as Yahweh commanded him, Instead of abandoning him, no, 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 you got that harem, I told you not to do that, I'm not with you. It's just not what happens. We've got to be so careful with these things. And he drove back the Philistines from Geba as far as Gezer. So, uh, an overwhelming defeat spanning over 20 miles. So that's a big deal. They were fighting, and God did the miracles, but still there was a lot of sword swinging and running and getting thirsty that day. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, again, may we rejoice that we can gather as an assembly, which does impact how we listen and receive, and not only from the Word and the pastor, but from your Holy Spirit, of course. We are very grateful for these things. May you protect the church. May you protect the church in this country. And may, uh, may righteous churches be more righteous still. And may you get us all home safely. We ask you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.